welcome to episode 42 of Breakout Culture. I'm Ed Vasey, the culture editor of Country and Townhouse magazine. And I'm Charlotte Metcalf, and I'm the associate editor at the magazine. Mid-June in London's really starting to open up with lots of art fairs and festivals. It's also Independent Bookshop Week from the 19th of June, so later we're going to be talking to one of the authors nominated for an award to celebrate it. But first we're going to talk to one of Britain's most prominent artists who's taking part in the inaugural Kensington and Chelsea Festival. That opens on the 21st of June and runs till the end of August. The festival's aim is to put art at the heart of pandemic recovery and promote the Royal Borough as a cultural hotspot by installing art everywhere you can think of, from Holland Park and Chelsea Physic Garden to shop windows. The festival's founding director, Vestalia Chilton, who came on the podcast last year to talk about Kensington Chelsea Art Week, has given this year's festival the theme of reimagining, on the basis that we all have to reimagine our lives post-pandemic while addressing the climate emergency and social, racial and justice issues. There's going to be a lot of reimagining at this festival and here to tell us all about it is Zach Ove, whose monumental sculpture, Autonomous Morris, will be outside the Design Museum. Good morning, Zach. Hi. Hi, Charlotte. And hi, Ed. Thank you very much for having me here. This is fantastic. And uh, I'm very excited to be involved in Kensington and Chelsea Art Week this year, installing at the Design Museum. Brilliant. Well, look, we don't want to talk about that yet. We want to talk about how you and Charlotte know each other. She's always <laughs> sneaking her mates onto this podcast. <laughs> and for full transparency, you need to tell us how long you've known Charlotte. I've known Charlotte a long time. <laughs> a long time. Charlotte very kindly produced a video for me, which was for the first Red Hot and Blue edition with Salif Keita and the Ballet Africain. Um, God. And we had to go and kidnap them from Reading. Oh, I, I mean, remember it was just that. Incredible. Oh, my God. So, so, I have so enjoyed watching you soar as an artist. Oh, and for thank listeners you. who might not know Zach's work, it's very much inspired by Carnival and his upbringing in Trinidad. His father was the famous documentary maker Horace Ove. Zach is the first ever Caribbean artist to have work on permanent display in the British Museum with his Moko Jumbi sculptures commissioned to tie in with Notting Hill Carnival in 2002. 15. But Zach really burst onto the scene in 2016 when his black and blue installation, an army of 40 two metre high identical sculptures of Nubian masked men, was assembled in the courtyard of Somerset House. Since then, he's continued passionately promoting and showcasing African Caribbean artists while carrying on with his own work. So tell us about Autonomous Morris Zach and what it represents. A lot of my practice looks at old world cultures and how I can kind of reinvigorate them with new world materials, which led me to wanting to make masks out of car parts and, and using a kind of a more current or contemporary source line of materials with which to continue that kind of expression. And that led me to wanting to make this head in particular out of VW parts and um, Morris Minor parts because of their lovely curvatures and the relationships they have, which allowed me to make something figurative I'm really excited about the head. I think it looks fantastic. How big is it, Zach? Because it does, it's, it's really colourful and great. Three and a half metres by three metres. And it, it feels very lifelike in the way it will confront you outside there on the forecourt. He's there to listen to all your problems and you can go and converse <laughs> with him on the forecourt of what was the Commonwealth Institute any day through the summer now. I'm very excited about the whole Kensington and Chelsea Art Week thing this year anyway because... 
after such a, a moody lockdown for so long, I think it's going to be a really nice um, discovery to see all of the art installations that they've got kind of hidden within Kensington and Chelsea this year. It looks like there's some real gems to go and look at. But in particular with my work, it's going to be quite an exciting moment for me to have this work there. The work itself is, is based on sort of a, an Africanist tradition of mask making and masquerade and feels very much in person, like something that you might find in a carnival or a carnival type setting. So nice to have that in, in, in that kind of uh, an environment here in Kensington. Zach, uh, you hinted earlier that you actually knew what other art was on display at this great um, festival. Do you want to give us some highlights that you know about that are going to be... Uh, no, I don't. Charlotte's going to do that for you. <laughs> I like the sound of Baker. Is, are they called Baker and Borofskis? Yeah. Um, and who are doing, doing this? Um, he does know. They're doing something called Wonderground. Some kind of rewilding installation on Warwick Road. And there is nowhere grimmer in London than Warwick Road, which is pretty traffic locked well, and grim. Charlotte, the Warwick Road Residents Association is going to be <laughs> Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's this is what, really... This is on the site of the old um, Olympia, isn't it? Yeah. I think what they're trying to do is just reimagine the space. So, Zach, tell us how your work came to be permanently installed at the British Museum. The British Museum hadn't really uh, acknowledged the Caribbean in any way whatsoever in its contemporary shape or form, which was a little bit embarrassing given how many Londoners come from or parents come from the Caribbean, um, you know, a huge amount of kids born here with that trajectory. So I think they were very excited come the 50th carnival, it was 50 years of Notting Hill Carnival, uh, and they wanted something that celebrated the Caribbean and spoke about the relationship between the Caribbean and Africa in particular, which is important because obviously there are generations of children born here that need to understand what their timeline is, where their parents came from, how they arrived in Britain, and how Britain fortified uh, their existences in the Caribbean beforehand. I looked specifically within the mythological culture of Trinidad to find something that felt representative of the Caribbean as a whole uh, in its retention of African culture. And that were these huge uh, Mocha Jumbi figures who are stilt walkers and um, begin their whole existence in West Africa and were retained through slavery by residents throughout the Caribbean who felt that that really invigorated the sense of their Africanism. But yeah, no, I'm very proud to have done that work for the BM. They're now permanently installed in the Sainsbury's Gallery downstairs. The thing that's nice is when you can elaborate on moments of um, London history or British history and open things up and create conversations that allow for, you know, um, new histories to be discovered and, and uh, new ideologies to grow from that. I think London's got a fantastic history and I hope I can get more opportunities in the future to unearth other histories and make works about them. I think there are a lot of public artworks that should really um, be set upon Kensington and Chelsea and the rest of the city that speak about uh, unsung heroes, uh, great Londoners that we need to kind of give more attention to. It is amazing, these kind of rediscoveries, if you like. I mean, I uh, was closely involved with the Cheneke Orchestra, which was Britain's first uh, black orchestra. I went to a concert this wow. week where they played music obviously from black composers, but each, the stories were amazing. Like Ignatius Sancho in the 18th century. Yeah. Was the first uh, person of color to get the vote because he became a shopkeeper in Westminster. And he Fantastic. got the vote. 
And also That's Joseph, incredible. Joseph Bologna, who I'd never heard of, turned out not only to be an inspiration for Mozart, but Marie Antoinette's piano teacher. No. It's amazing, these stories that you discovered wow. hidden for so long. Well, also through um, the next couple of months, we've got Carnival, uh, or would do normally with uh, Notting Hill. One of my heroes from that moment is Claudia Jones, who founded the Notting Hill Carnival after the Notting Hill riots as a means to use culture to get people to, 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 to come together. And what she wanted to do with that was use Caribbean culture as a way to ingratiate local people into uh, Caribbean identity in that sense, so that, you know, one could have a more integrated community post the Notting Hill riots. Um, and she um, sadly died years after that and is buried next to Karl Marx because she was also the leader of the Socialist Workers' Party in the US before coming to Britain. I think, you know, what's great about this festival generally is um, it's obviously made a huge effort overall to engage the whole community. I know there's going to be an exhibition of young people's photographs along Kensal Canal. I'm very excited to see all of these things come together. I know Vestalia and Rebecca have been really busting a gut this year to make this absolutely more spectacular than ever before. And this, this is now, what, tripled in size... In, since its uh, first uh, advent in 2018. Well, I think the festival sounds absolutely fantastic and exciting and how wonderful to have your sculpture outside the Design Museum. When is it going up? It's going up on the 21st and I'm hoping it will be there for an, a, at least three months, which is fantastic. So, yeah, I'm really, really excited to be involved and be a part of this. Oh, well, huge good luck with it, and I'm sure it'll attract loads of visitors. Thank you so much, Zach. Thank you both. Thank you, Ed, and thank you, Charlotte. Every year, the Booksellers Association organises Independent Bookshop Week, now in its 15th year and sponsored by Hachette. It starts on Saturday, the 19th of June, next week, and as part of the celebrations, there are going to be four awards, fiction, non-fiction, children's fiction and picture book respectively so we know what to buy for our summer reading from our nearest independent bookshop judges are independent booksellers and authors and the winners will be announced on scala radio on the 25th of june which is the penultimate night of independent bookshop week now there are some very big names on the fiction shortlist including phenomenal bestseller richard osman booker prize winner douglas stewart and kylie reed for her brilliant book such a fun age the non-fiction award has some equally illustrated entries, including Ben McIntyre, Lem Sisi and Grace Dent. Three great names, I have to say. Now, we're passionate about supporting independent and local bookshops on this podcast. And regular listeners will remember that we had Nicole Vanderbilt, the UK Managing Director of Bookshop.org, the website that champions independent bookshops on earlier this year. Now, Bookshop.org is going to be hosting some events with authors together with Blackwell's Bookshop. And today we're actually going to be talking to one of the authors who's been nominated in the children's category. Now, she's up against some very stiff competition, including Benjamin. Zephaniah for Windrush Child and Jasbinda Bilan who wrote the magical Tamarind and the Star of Ishtar. I'm talking about Meg Rossoff and her extraordinary book The Great Godden. Now the reason we've asked Meg on this podcast is that The Great Godden is such a beautifully written and compelling book that it defies categorization and can equally well be read by adults. I've read it I loved it and we're delighted to have Meg with us this morning. Good morning, Meg. Good morning. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Good morning, Meg. Now, you're an American living in Britain with loads of awards under your belt, including the 2016 Astrid Lindgren Memorial Award. 
Your prize-winning first novel, How I Live Now, sold over a million copies over 36 territories. But we are here today to talk about The Great Godden, which Charlotte insists is one of the best books she's read this year. I haven't read it because only Charlotte gets sent I bought it. I bought it. (laughs) High praise, high praise indeed. Anyway, you can start by telling me what it's about. Well, the uh, the Great Garden takes place at the beach uh, with two families over a long summer by the sea, where there's this one totally seductive gorgeous boy who's kind of the snake in the Garden of Eden. He's the son of a of a sort of faded movie star. And um, everyone knows more or less from the beginning that despite how gorgeous and charming he is, that the last thing that they want to do is to fall in love with him. And yet somehow he manages to to seduce them one by one. So it's not for children under five. (laughs) Well, I'm really intrigued as to why anyone would put this in a children's category, even though it is a very universal tale. Now, if listeners want a treat, listen to Andrew Scott reading the book on Audible as he carries the ambiguous gender of the narrator brilliantly. Of course, it becomes clear why you keep the narrator's gender unobvious, but this is such an exquisitely crafted story And I'm wondering how you feel about it being relegated to the children's section. Yes, it's one of those funny things. I mean, I I worked in advertising for 15 years, so I have a kind of pretty clear idea of how marketing works. And I sort of got put into young adult fiction with my first novel, How I Live Now. And But I think of myself more as writing about adolescence rather than writing for adolescence. So I think, you know, it's it's classically a category that is very um, difficult to pigeonhole. And the books that really influenced me when I was a kid were, were books about young people, about coming of age. So, you know, Pride and Prejudice and Henry IV. And there are times when I read books about adolescents that, or, or people around 18, 19, that aren't really um, considered children's books. And possibly that's because they're darker. I think um, people who are depressives tend to write books with, with hopeful endings, whereas really cheerful <laughs> um, uh people who are unbothered by a kind of constant feeling of of looming apocalypse and death uh tend to write really depressing books so my <laughs> books always have a little bit of of a ladder to come out of the hole at the end and i think that possibly makes them categorizable as as young adult they're not going to drive anyone to suicide as far as i know now, i wanted to ask i haven't read the book but as i was listening to you talk about it I have a 13-year-old girl and a 14-year-old boy. And I immediately thought, this is perfect for my girl. Now, have I fallen into a terrible gender stereotype trap by immediately thinking that? It kind of depends on the the young person involved. I mean, there are there are people who will never read anything except chiclet. There are people who will never read anything except uh, adventure stories. And although it, that does transcend gender, it often breaks down somewhat by, by gender groups, which, you know, is always a shame. I'm, I'm one of the, the first wave feminists, and I would like there not to be these categories when it comes to books. Now, you may have a son who is much more 
tuned in to, you know, why someone falls in love with, with a particular person or why people behave irrationally or why are you assigned a particular gender when you don't really feel that gender or, you know, all those kinds of questions. And you might have a daughter who's just out there playing football and, and beating up her friends. I mean, it, it kind of depends on the individual. Yes, no, too. I've got a son who's firmly tuned into Fortnite. And that's about it. But, um... <laughs> yeah, you might want to skip him. I, I know nothing about Fortnite. I'm too old. <laughs> and the other thing is, you've got this background in advertising. I mean, Faye Weldon famously uh, is supposed to have coined the phrase, go to work on an egg. Is there a link between advertising and writing. is The thing is, people like me who were born writers, but took a very long time to get there. So I was 46 when I published my first novel. And that was a kind of lack of confidence and a lack of belief that plot was something that I could ever handle, things like that. And they tend to, or we tend to gravitate towards things like publishing and advertising, where writing is very important. I wouldn't recommend that anybody go into advertising. Uh, I think it's a terrible <laughs> profession. But on the other hand, I, I had lunch yesterday with my uh, a woman I met when she was a BBC producer and we were working together on certain projects. And she told me that she was writing a memoir. And I said, well, that's fantastic because you'll have that story arc absolutely carved into your brain. And so many people don't have that. And I got that from advertising because I was writing 30 second TV commercials all the time. And and the story arc is a really, really important thing. And the idea of the, you know, that shape, that wonderful kind of arc shape, the beginning and the middle and the end. And that comes from working in advertising. Charlotte long ago said goodbye to 46. But I'm interested that it... <laughs> Thank it, you, Ed. Um, very gallant. <laughs> I mean, did you kind of feel aged in your 20s? I want to write, but the time's not right. Or did it suddenly come upon you in your 40s? Do you know, one of the reasons that I, I write about adolescence is that mine lasted from about 11 until kind of a, a couple of weeks ago. And I found that transition to, to adulthood really, really difficult. My, my ability to see myself in any clear way was, uh, for some reason, I just found it so difficult. So, you know, I didn't have the confidence in my 20s. And so it was what I would consider a kind of 25-year or 40-year, really, apprenticeship in, uh, you know, writing letters and, and writing advertising copy and uh, just sort of honing a voice in a way that suddenly feel, felt like it settled into place when I was in my 40s. Unlike uh, ballet, for instance, you know, you're not over the hill when you're 23. And in fact, I think, I, I always feel a, a little bit sorry for people who, who write their first bestseller when they're 23, because it means they have to keep turning books out for the next 50 years. And, and it's hard. Everyone takes their own time in, in coming to that place where they feel they have something to say and they have a coherent way to say it. Well, it's been well worth the wait. I, I really can't recommend it more highly. I mean, it's, you create such a sense of place and the dialogue's just just brilliant. I, I Honestly, it's a really brilliant book, reader. So rush down to your independent bookshop and buy lots of copies for everyone this summer. Now, it's also, of course, the ultimate summer read. So this is very good timing for you and I really hope you win. And please keep supporting your local independent bookshops. Indeed. Thank you so much, Meg.
Okay, thanks for having me. Take care, Meg. On the 1st of July, the Other Art Fair, presented by Saatchi Art, is going to be the first in-person art fair to open in London this summer. The 19th edition of the fair will run for four days and represents an exciting lineup of over 100 independent and emerging artists. Since it started 10 years ago in 2011, the Other Art Fair has become completely international. They've held 46 fairs here in America and Australia, sold over 28,000 artworks by over 3,000 artists from 22 countries. The other art fair is happening in West Handyside Canopy, a beautiful covered outdoor space just minutes from Cold Drop Yard. And Cold Drop Yard really is a fantastic development near King's Cross. The point about this fair and what makes it so popular is it gives people a chance to meet and buy direct from the artists. All the artists are UK-based, many of them from London. So when we say it's artist-led, the artists really are going to be there. You can meet a real-life artist. You can poke them. You try and have a conversation with them. They tend to be monosyllabic. Uh, but they will be there to meet you, the visitor, and hopefully you'll buy from them. Here to tell us all about it is the fair's founder, Ryan Stanier. Good morning, Ryan. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Really oh, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. And now you're not even 40. And I know from seeing you on Zoom that you look about 12, but you've achieved <laughs> such a huge amount with this fair in the last 10 years. Now, I gather you started it because your artist friends were complaining they had no platform from which to sell their work. So you decided to bypass all the traditional galleries and come up with this model. So tell us all about how it started and how you've just managed to turn it into something so permanent and so brilliant essentially the fair sort of came from this idea of i had lots of artist friends typically they want to sell their work they want to progress their career they want to get in front of a gallery maybe a curator you know the only way that they could do that would be putting on these sort of shows for themselves so typically they would hire a venue somewhere on the outskirts of london on the opening night all their friends and family would come along and say how great the their exhibition was they might buy something but it really didn't do anything in terms of helping them sell their work or progress. Um, so I sort of had this idea of, you know, why don't we put 100 of these like, artists that are un uh, unrepresented so they don't have an exclusive arrangement with a gallery, uh, put them all in one room and then make it more of an event rather than just, you know, one of these art events where it can be quite intimidating. And the whole idea is that people are meant to come, enjoy themselves chat to an artist, meet them, find an artwork that they love, and then they can take it away there and then. So who are you, Ryan? How did you get involved? What's your background? What were you doing before you started the art fair? Well, I was working for an events agency. Well, I mean, where, how far back do you want to go? Do you want to talk about my paper round? We could start there. Throughout university, I sort of started getting into events. I don't know if you know about garage music, Ed, but um, I used to run garage grime music. Is, grime is more my thing. Grime, okay, yeah. <laughs> Um, so I used to run garage nights and then so that got me into events. So it does remind me actually my first ever job was not a paper round but I did work for the Contemporary Art Society Art Market which was before you were born in 1985 I think and uh, it was exactly the same principle it was an art supermarket all the art was on the wall and you'd come in you'd buy the art and I would wrap it in bubble wrap and put it in a plastic bag and you'd walk off with it. So I think. Yeah, but they brilliant. met you, not the artist, though. That's the difference. Well, that's the point. <laughs> so the refinement that Ryan has brought is you've got 110 artists selling their work. Are they all going to be there? I mean, 100 artists actually isn't that many. And it sounds like a lot. But actually, when you're in the space, it's actually not a very big fair. Um, so it's quite easy to navigate your way around. And typically, I think people just sort of you know, they wander around and if something catches their eye, there's lots of very 
friendly artists there to sort of talk about their work. Um, they sort of stand by their painting. Yeah, essentially they stand in front of them. Uh, some of them sit. But yeah, I mean, that's the whole idea is that you get to come and meet and hear from an artist and hear what went into creating the work, um, their ideas, their inspiration, and hopefully have that connection and also build that relationship with a buyer. And how does Saatchi Art get involved? So for all of these independent artists that are looking to sort of, you know, continue their practice all year round, um, Saatchi Art provide a platform for them. So all of our artists are on Saatchi Art. So when... The fair's open for the four days. You can come to the fair and buy from the artists. But then the rest of the year, all of these same artists will have a profile on Saatchi Art. You can go and they can upload their work throughout the year. We sell their work throughout the year. So how do you choose all, all these artists? I mean, there's 110 of them coming, right? So yeah. also, Ed and I always have this, this question, which are your favourites, if any? <laughs> oh, yeah, the favourites. Um, so <laughs> how do we choose them? First of all, the selection committee. So we get a selection, a new selection committee for every fair. This year, we have a guest artist, which is Ronnie Wood from the Rolling Stones, a fantastic painter. There are other sort of activities going on, which might be of interest, which are like we do hand poke tattooing. What is a hand poke tat? I mean, essentially, they're creating the same tattoo, but it's without the drill. So it's, Is it permanent? It's permanent, yeah. Because I'm having a midlife crisis at the moment and tattoos oh. feature quite heavily in my thinking. I think I'd get a tattoo of Boris on my left shoulder. <laughs> <laughs> I'd get it on your forehead. <laughs> a tattoo of Boris on my forehead. That's bound to get me a ministerial position, isn't it? Sorry, we've disappeared down a Boris rabbit hole here. Yeah. But you are democratising, democratising the whole process because I think almost more than two-thirds of the buyers were, in 2018, were first time buyer and just to put a little bit into context you know at a fair we we can sell over a thousand artworks so that's a lot of people getting into buying art for the first time which is really exciting actually give us an idea of the price point as they say is it 300 quid 500 a thousand yeah that sort of price um the average price is around sort of 350 pounds and then that goes up to a couple of thousand You've cleverly dodged Charlotte's question about who your favourite artist is, quite understandably. They're, <laughs> I know, I know. They're, they're all your children. Since you've been doing it for 10 years, is there any artist that you showed in 2011 that's now not necessarily a household name, but very well established? Yeah, I mean, probably the best example would be a guy called Dan Hillier. He's based in London. He's the first artist I ever showed. He was sh at the time, he was on Spitalfields Market selling prints for 50, 100 pounds. Um, I really loved his work. I sort of put them in this pop-up gallery space that I had in Covent Garden and they started selling and that was really exciting to start selling art. He then started doing the other art fair. He did it for, I want to say, 10, 15 fairs. So he was really committed to it, did very well. And then I think it was two, three years ago, he did like a sellout show at the Saatchi Gallery. Um, and he was the very first artist that I ever worked with. So that's really nice to see that sort of progression. Now, if on the 21st of June, things do open up, then we can actually have people walking around and enjoying a drink. El Rayo is our tequila partner, so they can actually, you can have a drink and walk around the fair and have a lot more fun. If I were you, Ryan, I'd just ignore the rules and get raided because that'll add to the sort of frisson. Also, if you're drinking tequila, no one will mind because tequila's <laughs> such a great high. They should be <laughs> drinking Martin Miller's gin, Charlotte. They should be. They should, oh, sorry, yes, gin. Well, that sounds brilliant. All power to your elbow and carry on. Hopefully you'll be as big as Freeze in years to come. Particularly, yeah, actually, we haven't, we, we haven't explored the point that you've been all around the world with it. You've been to America, you've been to yeah, Australia. Australia. I mean, incredible. yeah, we've done 46 fairs now in total. So we've got 14 fairs a year. So we've got oh, two, wow. 
We got two in Sydney, one in Melbourne. We're getting back to doing three in London. We do two in Brooklyn, two in Dallas, two in LA. We're doing Toronto for the first time this year. We do Chicago. Well, that is fantastic. Really enjoyed talking to you. And uh, Charlotte and I will make it down there, knocking back the tequila. Yeah. Yeah, I can't wait. <laughs> buying uh, lots of art, which is affordable, though we'll probably buy too much. Good. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you, Ryan. Thank you. That's all we've got time for this week. But don't forget, you can listen to our Great British Brands podcast with host Michael Heyman. And if you love interior design, to our sister podcast, House Guest, with Carol Annette. This week, Carol talks to the landscape architect Marianne Boswell about her philosophy of maintaining a deep respect for the natural world while taking a hands-on practical approach to achieving results. Both those are on our website, which as I'm sure you all know by now is countryandtownhouse.co.uk. Yes, and just add slash newsletter to find our weekly Country and Townhouse newsletter. Ed's absolute favourite must-read, and our Great British Brands newsletter, which is the ultimate guide to the summer season this month and everything that goes with it from dressing up to unmissable events. We'll be back again next week, so tune in and please do subscribe and leave comments as that really helps us boost our audience. See you next week. Goodbye. <laughs>